Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows us. Wow, looks like today we're heading way back into antiquity for this one. We'll be talking about a battle fought at a place called Megiddo. You've actually heard of this place. No, really you have. You see, this place is where we get the word Armageddon. That's the Greek rendering of the Hebrew Armageddon, which means Mount of Megiddo. Check out your Bible. In the book of Revelation, chapter 16, verse 16, St. John the Theologian names it as the site of the final battle when he says, And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Now that's the only place in the Bible that the name Armageddon is used, but if you go through the Old Testament, you'll find the Hebrew version of the name Megiddo mentioned at least a dozen times talking about a bunch of battles that took place there between the Israelites and others. And going back even before those battles, we come to the one we'll be talking about today, the Battle of Megiddo from 1457 B.C., between Egyptian pharaoh Thutmose III and a coalition of rebel kings from Canaan and Syria. This battle is very probably the first battle in history to be recorded in full detail. Let's see what happened. First, some background. We'll pick up our story during Egypt's new kingdom with the reign of Pharaoh Thutmose II. He died in 1479 BC, leaving the throne to his son, who became Thutmose III. The problem was that he was only three years old at the time. As is usually the case in such situations, a regent was appointed to rule for him, until he came of age. Thutmose's stepmother, Hathshepsut, assumed this role, but quickly took power and proclaimed herself pharaoh. Thutmose spent his youth in military training and being educated to one day rule the kingdom. Meanwhile, Hatshepsut ruled Egypt well, bringing about a time of great prosperity. While she staged no major military campaigns after the first few years of her reign, she kept her army well-trained and ready for war. When Thutmose got older, she gave him command of her forces. This, by the way, shows a great deal of trust on her part, giving command of the army to the guy upon whose throne she currently sat. When Hatshepsut died in 1458 BC, Thutmose III assumed the throne. Almost immediately after this, he found himself facing a growing revolt from some of his vassal states. Syria and Canaan were both used as buffer provinces along the border with the Hittites, who were an enemy of Egypt. And as often the case throughout history, the time of a new ruler assuming power was seen as a good time for subject states to rebel. The idea here was to take advantage of the potential uncertainty of the transition of power, and perhaps win independence. Plus, in this case, Thutmose was seen as being weak 
because he put up with his stepmother ruling even when he was of age. It was the king of Kadesh who began the rebellion. He controlled a strong fortress that could protect him and his city, so he decided to give it a try. The king of Megiddo also had a strong fortress and joined with him. This coalition of Canaanites from Megiddo and Syrians from Kadesh drew others from the area who were dissatisfied with Egyptian rule. Between them, these coalition rulers began to gather a massive army of around 15,000 men and about a 1,000 chariots. Megiddo would serve as the base of operations for the coalition forces. It occupied a significant geographic location along the southwestern edge of the Jezreel Valley, just beyond the Mount Carmel Ridge. This location meant that Megiddo controlled the main trade road between Egypt and Mesopotamia. When Thutmose learned of the rebellion and that forces were massing at Megiddo, he decided to go on the offensive and strike at them in their own territory, rather than sit back and wait. He marshaled his forces, which would consist of about 20,000 soldiers, including a company of elite Nubians who were experts in the use of the composite bow. By the way, this battle will be the first one on record in which the composite bow was used. He also had about a thousand chariots. The march to Megiddo would have to cover about 300 kilometers, including going through the desert in the Sinai and Gaza areas. As a result, the army traveled with an abundance of food, water, and other supplies loaded onto transport carts pulled by teams of oxen. Reports say that they took over 14 tons of grain and stored their massive water supply in clay jars with their tops sealed to prevent spillage. Thutmose and his army set out from Thebes following the main trade road that would take them all the way to their objective. They made excellent time at the start, covering about 250 kilometers during the first 10 days. This brought them to Gaza, where they rested and recovered from their rapid march. From there, they went to Yehem, which was northwest of the Dead Sea near the Mediterranean coast. This was their last stop before pushing on to Megiddo, and Thutmose wanted to have a conference with his generals to decide their approach route. From the nearby town of Aruna, there were three possible routes they could take to reach Megiddo. Two of the potential routes, the one to the north and the one to the south, each had wide roads that allowed for quick and easy movement, but both wandered around and were kilometers longer than the third potential route. This one ran straight toward Megiddo, through the narrow Aruna Pass. It was the shortest and most direct route, but was so narrow that the troops would have to march in single file at times. This would mean that they would get strung out and require time to reassemble when everyone finally made it through. This also meant that they would be highly vulnerable to an ambush in such a confined area. Thutmose's generals pointed out the difficulties of the Aruna Pass even claiming that intelligence reports had the enemy waiting for them at the far end. They strongly advocated for either the north or south route instead. Thutmose listened to what his generals had to say, but then disagreed with their assessment of the situation. He decided they would take the narrow pass. 
His thinking was that it would be the most direct route so they'd get there quicker, and he felt the rebels would probably be guarding the easier north and south roads, expecting a large army to choose one of them. His generals, of course, bowed to his decision. Thutmose addressed his army and encouraged them to march as quickly as possible through the pass. He also told them that he himself would go first in line to lead them through. Horses and oxen had to be unhitched from chariots and carts, and the vehicles themselves had to be partially disassembled and carried on the backs of the animals, as they too were led in a single file. When Thutmose and his vanguard came to the end of the pass, they emerged into the Kena Valley near Megiddo. There was no enemy ambush waiting for them. Just as Thutmose had surmised, the rebel coalition had assumed he would take one of the easier routes and had deployed their forces to defend these locations. Thus, the majority of their forces were spread away from Megiddo. This meant that Thutmose had the element of surprise, but he couldn't take advantage of it because his army was still strung out all along the pass. It would be another seven hours before the rear guard finally made it through to join him. Consequently, Thutmose had his men camp just south of the city on the opposite side of the Kena Brook. That night, he received reports from his scouts and began to array his forces close to the enemy. The following morning, May 15, 1457 BC, by our calendars, Thutmose and his army crossed the Kena Brook and attacked. We can't be sure if the coalition forces, surprised as they were by the Egyptian approach, were fully prepared for battle. Although, because it began the day after the Egyptians arrived, many historians conclude that they were. Though the coalition forces were arrayed on the high ground, adjacent to the Megiddo fortress, Thutmose still had the upper hand as his troops deployed. He, on his gilded chariot, would lead from the center. The northern flank would be on a piece of ground to the northwest of Megiddo, and the southern flank would occupy a hill above the Kena Brook. This put both of the Egyptian flanks ahead of their center, forming a concave formation and threatening both coalition flanks from the very start. As the battle began, Thutmose hit the coalition hard from the center, with both his flanks advancing as well. The combination of the Egyptian position, superior numbers, a more maneuverable left flank, and the bold leadership of Thutmose soon broke the coalition's will and their line began to collapse. Fearing an encirclement on both flanks, the coalition forces broke formation and retreated in disorder. Those nearest to the city fled into it and barred the city gates behind them. At this point, the Egyptians could have ended the conflict right then and there, if they had kept up their attack. But instead, the troops stopped to plunder the rebel bodies and loot their campsite, which was just outside the city. Remember, for a common soldier, this was a chance to gain riches that would normally be beyond their reach. In this confusion, many of the scattered coalition forces, including both the king of Megiddo and the king of Kadesh, managed to make their way to the city walls. Accounts of the battle say that those inside lowered tied-together clothing over the walls for them to climb up to safety. 
Thutmose was furious with his men for throwing away the opportunity to quickly capture the city, but all he could do was chastise his generals for not keeping better control of the troops. The battle itself left 8,300 of the coalition forces dead, with another 3,400 wounded. The victory cost Egypt 4,000 dead and 1,000 wounded. But now, of course, Thutmose had the siege of a well-fortified city on his hands. He had his troops begin to construct a dry moat and wooden palisade that would eventually encircle the city and cut it off. The siege of Megiddo lasted seven months. During that time, the king of Kadesh managed to escape the city and return to his own lands. Other than him, few others managed to get out, except to surrender to the Egyptians. After seven months, the city's occupants were starved into surrender. Thutmose offered the surrendered city extremely generous terms. None of the leaders of the rebellion were executed. Instead, they lost their positions and were replaced with new officials loyal to Egypt. They also had to promise to never oppose Egypt again. Oh yeah, and to make sure they kept that promise, their children were taken back to Egypt as hostages. Youch, that sounds horrible. But understand that as long as their fathers kept their promise, these kids were safe, lived a comfortable life, and received a fine Egyptian education. Upon reaching adulthood, these hostages could go back home and assume positions of leadership with an appreciation for and a loyalty to the pharaoh. As for the city of Megiddo and its citizens, they were spared from destruction. Of course, the Egyptians did take home a bunch of goodies from the defeated forces and from the city. Records indicate they took over 2,000 horses, 900-plus chariots, 200 suits of armor, weapons, a couple thousand cattle, and over 20,000 sheep. So with his victory at Megiddo, Thutmose III established, early in his reign, that he was a powerful pharaoh and not someone to be messed with. The victory also gave him control over northern Canaan, and he could use this area as a base of operations for campaigns into Mesopotamia. The Mesopotamian princes, who had not joined in the rebellion, sent him tribute, both to win his favor and to buy his protection. In the following years, successive campaigns would re-establish Egyptian control over the other rebellious cities in the Jezreel Valley and in Syria. Yes, this great victory and its follow-up campaigns once again established Egypt as one of the great powers. Thutmose was seen as a great military strategist, ruling over a large and prosperous empire. But he wasn't done yet. He would continue to expand his empire, turning his attention to Egypt's southern borders next. But talking about those campaigns, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for listening. You know, if you like this episode, please tell your friends about it and check out some of my other episodes. And I very much look forward to talking with you again next week. <laughs>